Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. According to the Federal Reserve, over the last decade, the amount of student debt carried by Americans has jumped up 66%. It now totals more than $1.77 trillion. Borrowers in Maryland have the highest average amount of debt in the country, about $40,000 per person. On October 1st, after a three-year hiatus from making payments on loans because of the pandemic, the grace period ended. And with confusion about the new rules governing who has to pay and how much they have to pay, for many, the resumption of those payments has been a hot mess. Today, we're going to try to sort out what the rules are and what has gone wrong for many of the 40 million borrowers who are trying to dig themselves out of debt. If you are one of those people who've experienced difficulty with your student loan, we'd love to hear your story today. What's been the effect on your personal budget having to resume payments on your loan now after the three-year break? Do you qualify for any of the the loan forgiveness programs that may lead to your being able to stop payments at some point in the future? And have you called your loan servicer and been unable to get answers to your questions? Call us. We will answer the phone, I promise, 410-662-8780. Again, 410-662-8780. Or drop us an email, midday at wipr.org. My first guest is Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, who covers higher education, college affordability, accountability, and state and federal financial aid policy for the Washington Post. And she joins us on Zoom from Washington, D.C. Danielle, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, take us back to June and the Supreme Court and a decision they made about the Biden plan for student loan forgiveness to to set up our conversation today. Uh, What happened in June with the, the Supreme Court ruling? So the court decided that the administration had overstepped its authorities by creating a pretty sweeping program uh, that would have cost at least $430 billion to forgive up to $20,000 of student loan debt for more than 40 million Americans. Uh, In doing so, without congressional action or congressional input, the court decided to strike down that program. The Biden administration, as I think your listeners will want to know, is actually trying to figure out another route towards achieving the end of broader debt cancellation. This option is far more targeted, and it definitely would go through a rulemaking process to try to prevent a a second return to the court. But that's still underway. But once the court struck that down and, um, you know, Congress had pretty much told the department that you really need to uh, start coming up with a plan for the resumption of payments. As you had mentioned at the top of the segment, people hadn't made payments for about three years in light of the pandemic. And as a result of that, you were ushering back millions and millions of people back into a system that had never had that large a population coming in all at one time. And so it became kind of a recipe for, for I wouldn't say disaster, but definitely a challenging uh, outlook. And I think that's what we're seeing happening right now. Yeah, I guess about 7 million people graduated during the pandemic and had never had to make a student loan payment. They were just simply not used to doing that. Uh, That's a lot of people. (laughs) It definitely is. I mean, you know, at at any given year, there will be 
several thousands, tens of thousands of people graduating, coming into the system. You get a six month grace period. You get to try to figure out what payment plans are right for you. But that's like on steroids at yeah. this stage. And at a time, mind you, when the resources to help those people are not quite as robust as one they should be or they could be. You know, a lot of this was happening while Congress made the decision to not fund the arm of the education department that handles student loans to the degree to which would have made it easier for the contractors they use, student loan servicers, to hire more people, to make sure they were completely staffed and manned in order to answer phone calls and help walk people through their options. Well, that money didn't come to fruition. And so there were a lot of cuts. The department told their servicers, you can cut Saturday call hours. You can reduce the amount of staffing you have and we won't penalize you. And we're seeing that come to bear in these long wait times that a lot of borrowers are complaining about. You uh, got access to uh, an internal memo uh, from the education department, uh, which, as you report, uh, has been scrambling to try to figure out how to, how to make sense of all of this. Um, what were the, the highlights of that memo? What did we learn uh, about the education department's challenges here? So there were just a lot of like minor blunders that cumulatively show how challenged the servicing system and the department is with trying to handle the mass amount of people coming back. Some of the things that stood out to me were there were people who were getting bills from their servicers saying they owed $100,000 a month. Mm. Uh, and this was a month, right. a month, mind yeah, you, yes. Right. And this was likely because the servicer accidentally set the repayment terms to one to two months instead of 120 or 240 months. So really kind of like a fat finger mistake of sorts. And not to say that this stuff has never happened before, but it was happening at a frequency and at a, a scale that was a pretty, pretty eye popping. Um, you know, there were also hundreds of thousands of people whose calculations, payment calculations were off. Uh, on the Biden administration's new plan called SAVE. And as a result, they were seeing bills that were far higher than what they actually had to pay. So, you know, all of these things can be corrected, but what really is kind of affected is the trust and uh, that borrowers have in the system, in the department, in this administration when these sorts of errors happen. And you also report that the Biden administration uh, is trying to help out the, the borrowers, but also in some instances penalizing the servicers. There's a thing in Missouri, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, known as MOELA, uh, failed to send statements in a timely manner to two and a half million people. Um, and so there were a bunch of people who missed their first loan payment. Uh, and missing a payment can have uh, really, you know, long-term dire consequences, can it? Certainly. I mean, what I think is fortunate for a lot of borrowers right now that as a part of this return to repayment, the Biden administration decided to create what's called a 12-month on-ramp, kind of a grace period, an extended grace period, whereby if you miss a, a payment during this time, it won't be record, reported to the credit bureaus, which is great for people. Um, so while this was a pretty embarrassing mistake on Mohila's part, and it's still not exactly clear if there was a direct correlation with people um, missing payments as a result of receiving these late notices. Because in some instances, the notices were like four or five days late, sometimes much longer, but still 
the fact that that happened for 2.5 million people is definitely a black eye for the servicer and definitely not what the department had hoped to be able to do for, for borrowers coming into this repayment system. Daniel Douglas Gabriel is an education reporter for The Washington Post who covers, among other things, financial aid. Our number here at Midday, we're talking about student loans. We'd love to hear your story. If you'd like to share what's going on with your situation, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at org. So there are um, aspects of this SAVE plan you just alluded to, which was sort of the Biden plan B, I guess, is that, I mean, that the SAVE plan came out of the, um, the S- Supreme Court decision that got rid of the original plan to forgive various loans, right? So um, the Biden administration did come up with a plan pretty quickly uh, after that decision in the summer. Uh, and part of it is... Uh, if you if you it's income driven it it is it is based on how much money you're making um explain how that part of it works so save is a little different than the um debt forgiveness plan that was struck, struck down by the supreme court and i think this is where it becomes a little confusing because the biden administration actually announced the plan at the same time that it was talking about um losing that supreme court case but they are separate efforts uh and and they were you know the safe plan was underway well before uh the student loan forgiveness options came into play really but what this plan does is it's really the most generous income-based uh, repayment plan that we've ever seen. And there have been income-based repayment plans dating back to the Clinton era, actually. Uh, but this one really shields the amount of income that is used in the calculation of your payment in a really remarkable way that could lower the monthly payment for scores of people. It is perhaps most generous to undergraduate borrowers who borrow less than $12,000. Many of those students, especially if they are low income, um, will have to pay very little towards their student loan payments per month and could potentially see loan forgiveness after 10 years of payment. And there are many people who actually would qualify for zero payments based on their earnings under this plan. And potentially, if their earnings don't go up within that 10-year period and they have these low balances, may never have to make a payment and have the balance on their loans forgiven. So this is how it differs from what is in existence. I do want to clarify that you know the plan B is really a totally separate thing that's happening right now at the federal level called uh, NEGRED, right? This is negotiated rulemaking. You bring together a bunch of people, they hammer out a plan, and that is what the Biden administration is hoping to be the plan B for the plan that got struck down by the Supreme Court. It is nowhere as generous or as expansive as what was uh, what the court struck down, but it is an alternative to getting more people student loan forgiveness. Well, uh, just as an indication of how confusing this is, I was using so plan, yeah, I was using Plan B <laughs> kind of generically, you know, that the Save program was the you know the next the next step in this process, and there actually is a Plan B, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there really is. I mean, it's so it's funny. I have like a a Venn diagram almost of all the things and how they all interconnect interconnect and stuff uh, on my desk just to keep it all all together. 
Well, you know, sorting it out is uh, no easy task, and you're doing a great job, and I appreciate it. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, she's an education reporter for the Washington Post. Our number here at Midday, 410-662-8780, our email, midday at wypr.org. So you mentioned this, the federal loan forgiveness program uh, is set up in that uh, if you make your payments uh, on a regular basis, uh, after a certain period of time, 10 years, 15 years, sometimes it's as much as 25 years, I think, if if I've got that part right, yes. um, then then it gets your, whatever balance you have at the end of that period, uh, the loan is forgiven. This is what makes um, these administrative screw-ups, like in Missouri, really important because if you don't make one of those payments because you got the wrong bill or you didn't get a bill or for whatever reason, um, that affects the, I mean, the, 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 the clock starts ticking once you start making those payments. But if you don't make them or you miss some, then that messes up uh, that calculation, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. The payment count really matters, right? So if you're trying to work towards that, that loan forgiveness, it very much matters. And it also especially matters for people who are working towards a program known as public service loan forgiveness. This is a program trying to get nurses, social workers, teachers, police officers, student loan forgiveness in exchange for the public service that they do. When they're not making those counts, then that screws up their ability to get uh, loan forgiveness after 10 years of service and 120 uh, qualifying payments, right? So these things matter. And, you know, the Biden administration is well aware of that. And I think that's why you saw the quick response to Mohila's era of one, finding them $7.2 million, and then two, ensuring that people would be uh, made whole for any of those, any missed payments and making sure that those counts are still intact. Uh, How about the status of what's called parent plus loans? Uh, because there are parents who take out the loans instead of the students. Uh, Are they ever going to be in a position where some of those loans would be forgiven as well? There is a way to get student loan forgiveness for Parent PLUS loans. It is so convoluted, and it's so unfortunate Mm -hmm. that parents have to jump through these loopholes. One of the income-driven plans that exists, one of the older ones, is called Income Contingent Repayment. And essentially, if you consolidate your Parent PLUS loan, you can be eligible for that plan and receive loan forgiveness after a set amount of years. There are a lot of parents right now um, who are taking advantage of this loophole whereby after they can double consolidate their loans. This gets technical, but I wrote about it, so please go check it out for all of the details. But um, they can double consolidate in order to essentially hide the fact that it's a parent plus loan make it look like a brand new loan that would then be eligible for save, which is, again, one of the more generous repayment plans and could potentially produce lower monthly payments and a faster path to forgiveness. But, you know, Parent PLUS loans are a challenging thing because these are families that are oftentimes parents who are oftentimes close to retirement. They don't have 10, 15 years to wait around for student loan forgiveness, right? But also they don't have a lot of money to throw towards these debts. And these debts are far more expensive than student loans. They are higher interest, higher origination fees. And so it's a really untenable situation for a lot of families. Yeah, absolutely. They probably also don't have PhDs in economics, which they need to figure out how to double <laughs> consolidate your loans. I mean, it's oh, just nuts. Yeah. That's just nuts. Um, under the, the SAVE plan, um, there are certain categories of people who uh, the Biden administration is certainly 
trying to to help out in particular. Um, as I understand it, one of those categories uh, are people uh, who have current balances that are much greater than what they originally borrowed. So they borrow, say, $20,000, don't make payments uh, or make minimum payments, and the interest adds up and adds up and compounds and compounds. So all of a sudden, that $20,000 loan, you know, a few years later is $60,000. Um, we're going to yeah. talk to somebody, um, a guy named Alan College, uh, who was in that very situation himself back in the late 90s. So how, how are those people helped and what is the status? Because it seems to me that's a lot of people uh, whose you know, interest has compounded so that they're all of a sudden, uh, or not all of a sudden, but over this period of time, they owe a lot more than they started with borrowing. Certainly. So under this particular plan, if your monthly payment um, is not enough, sufficient to cover the interest that it accrued on your debt, the government will cover it, right? So let's say that you are paying $15 a month, but in reality, if you include your interest, you really should be owing 25. The difference would be covered by the government. And that's a pretty substantial change from the way any of the other um, payment plans works. This prevents what's known as negative amortization. Um, one of the reasons, as you mentioned, why borrowers can see their balances balloon over time. But the education department is also uh, limiting interest capitalization. That's another kind of component to this, whereby when you move out of certain repayment plans or you go from forbearance back into repayment, any unpaid interest is then tacked on to your principal. And so you're paying interest on interest on interest, right? So that is also ending. Um, so people will not see that kind of ballooning of their debts because of the interest. But at the same time, there is an argument and, and we are seeing legislation that has popped up continually talking about why is the government charging such high interest on these loans? You know, the Parent PLUS loans for, as an example, is 8% interest mm. on that loan. Yeah. That's that's staggering, staggeringly high. And, um, you know, Congress had worked to try to lower it or at least cap it several years ago by trying to peg that interest rate to, to T-bills. But still, there's a lot of questions around why does it need to be that high? Certainly, it subsidizes the program in, in a lot of ways because there's not a whole lot of underwriting. But still, the idea of charging graduate students, that's another one, 7% interest, 8% interest on these loans just doesn't really sit well with many people. And those high interest rates were in place even when uh, the 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 general interest rate for, uh, you know, the, the Fed was keeping interest rates for a long time at zero. Uh, yeah. Even, even though everybody else was, you know, borrowing to buy a car or, or paying low interest rates on mortgages, the student loan interest rate sort of never went down. They, they weren't able to tackle that problem uh, with any immediacy, were they? I mean, there were periods of times where it was cheaper to purchase a house or a car than a graduate degree or a funder of a graduate education. And that's often, still often the case. And the thing is that, you know, Congress did impose caps to make sure that the rates would never go above 9% or 10% in some instances, which, you know, was really a likelihood back in the day in the 90s and in the 80s and such, but still stubbornly high interest rates on these graduate and parent plus loans. Uh, speaking of parent plus loans, we have a listener in San Diego. Patrick is on the line. Patrick, welcome to Midday with Daniel Douglas Gabriel. Yes. Hi. Good afternoon. Thank you. So uh, tell us about your situation. You have a bunch of kids, a gaggle of geese that you sent to college, huh? 
a gaggle of geese. Yeah, we have four kids that uh, all got through college. Uh, a little bit of scholarships, uh, but so but mostly it turned into uh, student loans. So they have uh, student loans in their names, and for the most part, they've been able to pay them off. You know, ten years down the road, but not by following payment plans. But they were able to sink you know large amounts to kind of overwhelm the interest and everything to get that done. But uh, parent plus loans, we took those out to to make up the the differences. You know, rightly or wrongly, or wisely or unwisely. But um, my thing is, um, uh, you know, like like the the uh, your guest was saying, these loans aren't vetted. So, for example, uh, one one year I was denied a three thousand dollar credit card for loan consolidation, but at the same time, on the same day, I was granted you know ten thousand dollars in Parent Plus loans. So this money is out there to people that really may not qualify under normal circumstances. And, uh, you know, we've been basically able to handle it. It's, it's going to really cut into savings. But how many millions are trapped with this money that they can't pay off, but there's no bankruptcy protections on the back end? So it's, it's kind of a trap yeah. situation. And, frankly, I don't trust the government's, you know, consolidation programs to, to get that. So All right. Well, thanks for that perspective, Patrick. I, I appreciate it. And, Danielle, um, when it comes to... Um, the some of these institutions uh, and some of the not just the lending institutions, but sometimes the institutions of higher ed themselves. You've written about uh, recently uh, a private one of these private colleges that's been uh, I think it's called Grand Canyon University, and they were just uh, uh, fined thirty seven million dollars for uh, misleading students about what it actually costs to attend this place. Um, is the uh, are, are the current plans, uh, do they include, you know, cracking down, uh, particularly on these private uh, colleges that have been, uh, you know, so much in the news for uh, for some pretty nefarious practices? Certainly, there are lots of accountability measures that the administration is taking, especially with uh, the reintroduction of the Gainful Employment Act. This is a um, law that essentially says that colleges can't saddle their students uh, with career programs in particular can saddle their students with more debt than they can reasonably repay. And so that's one of the way that the uh, administration is trying to, to hold schools accountable. And also by being transparent about what sorts of outcomes these programs have and not just career schools, uh, the those kinds of private for-profit schools, but graduate programs. Uh, you know, I think we have to mention the fact that graduate programs account for the largest growth in student debt and have, you know, the graduate loans have, as I mentioned before, some of the highest interest rates and uh, saddle people with tens and twenty thousands and so many, so much debt that is often untenable and very much difficult to pay for social work degrees, education degrees and such. And so I think we're at a point where people are starting to take a hard look at where's the money going? Is there value in the degrees that are being offered and what role schools have to start playing in being forthright with students about the cost and starting to rein in on some of the expenses of education? So I know we got to let you go, and I want to ask you one more question about where the accountability and where the responsibility lies when it comes to people 
uh, calling and not getting an answer uh, when they have questions about their student loans? Is it the servicers, the service providers, or is it the Department of Education that has to figure out that kind of stuff, these erroneous bills that are going out for $100,000 a month instead of, you know, over a period of, uh, you know, 140 months, it's a period of one one month, That those kinds of mistakes. Is it the Department of Ed that's got to fix that, or is it individual contractors from the Department of Ed who are servicing these loans? It's both. I mean, you know, the department is essentially is still the boss here. You know, these are their contractors. And so the responsibility still lies with them to ensure that their contractors are doing as they're supposed to. But they also have to be clear on their guidelines and guidance and preparation and planning. And from what I've heard from folks within the servicing community and who are paying attention to this stuff, there hasn't been a whole lot of communication between the two. And it, there's been kind of a contentious relationship. So I don't know exactly how much of that contributes to some of the errors and the incidents that we're seeing, but I would suspect that it might, it definitely might. And, you know, servicers also have to be more conscientious about how they are planning out uh, these sorts of bills and making sure that they are not doing it in a way that confuses people. I've had a spoken to borrowers who received two or three different bills showing different amounts for their accounts. And that's exceedingly confusing. And for people who have the time to make calls and wait for hours and hours to get through, that's fine. But how many Americans actually can spare that time during their workday to get that done? And so the responsibility lies on both the contractor and, you know, the department that is paying these people in order to do this work. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel is an education reporter for The Washington Post. Danielle, I may be just as confused or more confused than when we started, but somehow I feel better. <laughs> I hope not. I, okay, I, well, I still good. feel better. So I appreciate <laughs> the time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And up next, a law student in Washington shares her experience with her loans and the reasons behind some of the, the decisions that she's made about her education. And the founder of an organization whose members have stopped paying back their loans tells us why he calls the student loan industry a scam. And we'll take more of your questions and comments as well. 410-662-8780. Our email midday at WIPR.org. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station. Member supported 88.1 WIPR. Welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, it's the Midday News Wrap. We will examine the consequences of the recent ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals that knocked down a Maryland law requiring a license before the purchase of a handgun. Eric Tershwell, the executive director of Everytown Law, will join me to talk about what that ruling means for Maryland and for the rest of the country. Plus, the Poulenc Trio previews a concert that they're going to give this weekend, and Jay Wynn Russick will review Fat Ham at the Studio Theater in Washington. So that's coming up tomorrow. If you've just joined us today, we're talking about student loans. Repayments resumed at the beginning of October after a three-year hiatus implemented when the COVID crisis began. My next guest is a student in Washington, D.C., Jenea Moore, has an undergraduate degree and a master's. She's now in her first year of law school at the University of the District of Columbia, and she joins us on Zoom from UDC in Washington. Jenea, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. So um, do you mind my asking how much uh, student debt 
do you currently have, given that you're, uh, you've already completed an undergraduate degree and a master's? Yes. Yeah, so currently I'm holding approximately $114,000 in student loan debt. And then you're in law school on top of it. Yes, I'm in law school. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about that decision to, to get the undergraduate degree, get the master's, and then also get an, what essentially is another uh, graduate degree, which is what law school is all about. That's that's a lot of education, It's but it's a lot of debt, too. Yes, um, it is a lot of debt, um, but also what you said, it's also a lot of education. Um, and for me and for those that look like me and from where I come from, um, we really don't have a lot of opportunities um, as Black people and Brown people to have um, the access to education or opportunities of higher education. Um, so I would say my trajectory and my perspective on accumulating this much debt um, is a hard pill I had to swallow, but I had to look to be very optimistic about it um, more so than anything and just use it as an investment within myself um, to be a vessel um, for my family and for my friends and for my community and from where I come from being from New York and then moving into Richmond, Virginia eventually um, and now in DC um, and just seeing that for where I am now, I did have to make a lot of sacrifices. And one thing is accumulating the student loan debt. Um, but it allowed me to open up so many doors for not only myself, but for others that we're not really accustomed to having. Um, so I would say to answer your question, like that's kind of like how I look at it is like, um, it is a very unfortunate um, thing that, you know, I have to go into this much debt to be able to have something that should be either very, um, accessible and affordable um, or free at that. Cause I feel like knowledge is just a beautiful thing that should just be shared without a price tag. Um, but unfortunately this is where we are. This is America. So mm -hmm. I had to kind of play by their rules to get where I am today. And of the, you know, 40 million people uh, who have loans, uh, African-American women have the highest levels of loans, the highest average loans per person. Um, because they're they're getting these educations and uh, it's costing an awful lot of money. Um, do you expect to be able to pay everything off at some point? I mean, in three years, putatively, you'll be a lawyer and uh, you can get a job. Uh, you know, there are some lawyers who make uh, a whole lot of money, uh, depending yeah. on the kind of law you, you might practice. Um, but do you expect uh, at some point to be able to pay everything back? Um, that is definitely the hopes. Um, I don't think honestly anybody with student loan debt wouldn't dream of having it paid off. And then, you know, just with the uh, current administration and then the hopes with just hearing about the uh, forgiveness that could have came if the student loan debt cancellation would have went through and wasn't struck down in the Supreme Court. Um, there are still hopes that I would love to be able to pay it off. And I try my best to have a game plan or um, an idea of ways that I could be able to at least funnel in enough income where I can be able to really push to paying off my student loans. Um, but, you know, three years can have, and a lot can happen in three years. And that's just with the hopes that um, there are different policies in play that will make 
that possible, um, as well as hopefully the hopes that getting out of school, which I know is um, also another um, heavy hitter for our conversation for um, a different day, but being able to actually find a job where you can afford to um, still take care of your household bills, hopefully have a savings, hopefully have a retirement of some sort and still pay off your student loan. So yeah. that's definitely the hopes. Um, but you know, a lot could happen within three years. So yeah, we just got to see. Sure. And one more quick question. Um, now that you're in law school and you still have, you know, the normal bills of, uh, you know, supporting yourself and living, uh, were you, uh, are you able to, to get on the income-driven repayment plan for the, the other loans so that it's, uh, it takes into consideration the fact that you have these expenses and, uh, you know, obviously not working full-time uh, because you're in law school? So uh, have you been able to, to get into that? Yeah, so thankfully enough, I have been able to get into that. Um, and I would say that so far the payments are pretty reasonable. I have not been completely transparent, have not put any money towards my payments. Um, and I think because it's still picking up that I'm still a student. So it was, of course it's not um, doing anything towards me as far as like impacting me and going into default or anything like that of the sort. But um, I did look into the income driven plan um, and I'm hoping that at least sometime next year, I could start putting money towards that while I'm still in school, just to kind of help alleviate that stress when I graduate. Jenea Moore is a law student at the University of the District of Columbia. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experience. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Tom. And if you'd like to share your story about a student loan, please give us a call, 410-662-8780, or email midday at wypr.org. My next guest is the author of a book called The Student Loan Scam, an indictment of the $85 billion student loan industry as highly profitable and predatory. Alan Collins is also the founder of Student Loan Justice, an organization that claims a million members, which advocates for the return of standard bankruptcy protections to all student loans and the cancellation of all federally owned student loans by executive order. Alan Collins joins us on Zoom from Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Alan, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Good to be with you. So tell us about the bankruptcy protections and whether or not those protections currently extend to folks in your situation, your personal situation, as well as, you know, 40 million other people uh, who are uh, currently, you know, trying to, to get out of debt. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I know it may not be obvious, but having studied this problem very closely for nearly 20 years now, I can tell you the absence of bankruptcy lies at the core of this entire problem. Uh, you know, the founding fathers, uh, who they themselves were being savaged under debt to, you know, the king, they called for uniform bankruptcy laws uh, and rights in the Constitution ahead of the power to declare war and raise an army. So while nobody wants to file for bankruptcy, the leverage that the right of bankruptcy provides to the borrowers uh, uh, really keeps the lending system in check. And that's why bankruptcy is so important. So here today, bankruptcy has been stripped uniquely from both federal and private student loans. And this is essentially, to use a politically charged word, this has weaponized the loans. It has given the entire lending system essentially a license to steal 
from borrowers with with impunity. And we've seen, you know, I could tell a lot of stories, but suffice it to say, the founding fathers were pretty smart when they called for bankruptcy. It's been taken away. And I know there's a lot of talk recently about some changes to the bankruptcy process, but I can tell you that even still here today under President Biden, it is essentially impossible to discharge federal student loans in bankruptcy. And that has absolutely got to change. Are there any other categories of loans where that's also the case or is student loans a you know p- a particular and unique situation? Student loans have been singled out uniquely. There are no other loans that have this special barrier to discharge that student loans have. Uh, and you know this combined with the removal of what's called statutes of limitations, there are other consumer protections that have been removed, but statutes of limitations is the length of time uh, for which a borrower can be pursued. When you remove these two protections, it essentially is a one-two punch that keeps the borrowers on the hook for this debt for their, their entire lives and allows the lending side to pile on interest and fees and you know, I'll tell you one story. One of our members in uh, California, she's repaid over $100,000 on a $25,000 loan. And uh, she currently, or until recently, owed something like $130,000 on this debt. So these are the sort of stories we're, we're seeing, Tom. And, you know, um, one very important statistic that people need to realize People who are underwater on their loans that you described earlier in the program, in other words, people who have larger balances today than when they got out of college, that's about 85% of all student loan borrowers. So by all rational metrics, uh, the federal student loan program has gone past disaster, and I think it's in the realm of the catastrophic at this point. All right, we'll talk more about this after a quick break. Alan Collins is the founder of Student Loan Justice and the author of The Student Loan Scam. We'll have more with Alan on the other side of our break. 410-662-8780, our email midday at wipr.org. We'll try to take a couple of calls when we come back as well. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you just joined us, we're talking about student loans. Repayments for some borrowers began at the beginning of last month. And you are welcome to join our conversation, 410-662-8780, our email midday at wypr.org. My guest is Alan Collins, the founder of Student Loan Justice and the author of a book called The Student Loan Scam. Let's go to the phones to Retta, who's on the line from Saverna Park. Retta, how you doing? What's on your mind? I'm well, thanks. <clears throat> nice to talk with you, Tom. Um, I have so many different perspectives on this topic, um, and it comes from the fact that I was a Maryland school teacher and school elementary school principal and college professor over my 40-some years in education and working with students who had not paid off their loans. And, of course, teachers don't make a whole lot of money, and um 
it's I'm surprising businesses first of all when they recruit these young people that they're not offering perks like we received master's degrees in Baltimore County, Harford County, Frederick County, and Baltimore City um, free of charge. We um, were given assistance with um, finding housing and transportation, and you know there was a real backup plan, knowing that these young people needed to pay these loans off. And um, at one point, they were talking about helping teachers if they stayed in Baltimore City, um, supplementing their interest rate, lowering an interest rate so that they could buy a house reasonably and be near their work to keep good teachers there. Mm -hmm. I am very much against us paying for for student students who choose to go to all of these universities. I'm not a black or brown person, but I've only worked in very poor schools with very poor parents, and I know many of them pay as they go. All right. Well, thanks for that perspective. I appreciate it. And Alan College, um, as I understand it, you have three degrees in aerospace engineering. Uh, you went to USC uh, out in California. Um, you know, the basic question that comes up with this, folks always say, well, if you took out the loan for a mortgage on your house, you have to pay it back or you lose the house. If you took out a loan for a car, you don't pay it back, you lose the car. Um, if you take out a loan for college uh, or for graduate school uh, and you don't pay it back, um, that that's just simply uh, ethically not the right thing. As I understand it, your organization um, or, or you have stopped paying uh, on your loans uh, for some time. And, and, and what, what does that accomplish? And how does that? Uh, how, how do you respond to the to the folks who are paying back their student loans, uh, while while you and, and and many of your members are not? Well, Tom, um, this is not a bad borrower problem. So even uh, before the pandemic, most student loan borrowers uh, were unable to make payments on their student loans. About fifty eight percent. That's going to go up. That's going to go up to 70, 75 percent. Frankly, um, I I think we're seeing the end of the federal student loan program. The numbers are too large. And for someone to wag their finger at the borrowers, you know, when do you start looking at the lending program? You know, we have a Department of Education that is profiting $108 billion in interest every year. And, you know, there's another misconception that the people aren't paying. And that's just false. People are, many people uh, have paid uh, through the nose. In fact, if you look at the inflow outflow, the cash flow of the Department of Education, you see that they've roughly been breaking even over the years. In other words, the interest that they've gotten back has uh, subsidized the entire portfolio so that today the loans can be canceled at no additional cost to the government, uh, it wouldn't add a dime to the national debt. Uh, I, I think there's just a lot of people out there that don't understand the facts behind this predatory lending system. How is it that uh, you unlike, how, how is it that you calculate that it wouldn't add anything to the national debt? I mean, the the estimated cost of uh, one of Mr. Biden's plans was like four hundred and fifty billion dollars. Canceling profit is not a cost. Canceling profit is um, is nothing like a cost. You know, we're talking about the federal government here, and we're talking about a federal loan program that back in 1965, when they rolled it out, 
President Johnson at the time declared that the loans would be free of interest. The, the federal government does not make a profit on anything, and there's no good reason for it to be making uh, obscene profits on the federal student loan program. So as I said, before the pandemic, most people weren't paying. Going forward, I would estimate that six months from now, probably 80% or more of the borrowers are not going to be paid on their loans. So it's just a fact. The loans will not be paid. And the Wall Street Journal agrees, by the way. The loans ultimately absolutely will be canceled. And at the rate that interest is clicking off, probably makes a lot more sense to cancel it now than later if this if this sort of non sequitur cost issue is important to people because uh, the lending program is going to be doubled in size in 10 years and even still the loans will not be paid this, this thing is a catastrophe the likes of which we've never seen in uh, mm -hmm. government finance in U.S. history. Let me uh, suggest something from a listener, Graham, who sends an email who says that government-backed loans that can't be discharged in bankruptcy, we were talking about that prior to the break, can't be discharged in bankruptcy. They create below market rates for comparable non-government unsecured rates, resulting in increased incentives to borrow, which leads to ever-increasing tuitions, et cetera, in a vicious cycle. Uh, forgiveness of these loans doesn't solve that. Um, what do you think of that perspective from uh, this listener? Well, I frankly agree that government involvement in the federal student, uh, in student loans in general has massively inflated the price of college. It's taken all the risk out of the loans for the government, uh, uh, for the lenders, it's hugely lucrative, obviously, and for the colleges. So the colleges are given carte blanche to raise their tuitions and the students who trust their colleges have no idea about the predatory underpinnings of these loans are duped into borrowing ever increasing amounts. And, you know, I've been I've been raising the red flags about this since 2005. And at this point, I have to say the, the lending system is catastrophically failed. I think Danielle was being sort of nice about it, but truly this thing has gone past. And I think the pandemic was the nail in the coffin, quite frankly. Uh, I think this thing has gone past disaster and we're in the catastrophic realm at this point. Let's go to the phones again to Robert. He's calling from East Baltimore. Welcome to the show with Alan Collins. And we don't uh, have Robert. Evidently, we've lost him. How about Russell is on the line from Baltimore. Russell, welcome to Midday. Hey, Tom, how's it going? I'm a, I'm a jazz saxophone player from Baltimore. We've uh, met a few times. Um, I had something crazy happen a few weeks ago. I got a letter in the mail that my loans had been forgiven. And uh, I've been in a uh, public service loan forgiveness program for like over 10 years and recently got a letter that they were forgiven. And honestly, I'm kind of nervous. I, I don't know what to do. Well, it's good news. Uh, and it's good news that you didn't have any particular inkling was uh, about to happen, Russell. Is that true? Well, I've been on this program for so long. And um, I've been and I just didn't really know if it was actually going to happen. And I, I feel like that even though I got this letter that says one hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth of loans have been forgiven, I feel like I'm waiting for the ball to drop. And like, you know, five years from now, they're going to call me and say, oh, yeah, that, that program didn't work to owe us the money. So I'm nervous. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know what to say, <laughs> say to you, Russell, but uh, Alan, I mean, is this a, a good step in the right direction for the public service loans? You know, clergy, nurses, firefighters, uh, teachers, etc. 
Yeah, it's true. Um, over Biden's first three years in office, he canceled about $125 billion in debt through uh, various pre-existing programs. So this was not the executive order that we were hoping for. But um, but taking two steps back, you know, the federal portfolio grows by about $600 billion in interest, new loans, et cetera, in uh, three years, typically, so that you know, Biden could do this level of loan cancellation for or the next president could do this level of loan cancellation forever. And the federal portfolio will still grow by, you know, one point six trillion dollars every 10 years. So congratulations to the caller. Um, but yeah. unfortunately, that's pretty few and far between. All right. Well, Russell, good luck with that. And Alan Collins, the founder of Student Loan Justice. Thank you for your perspective and your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow on the Midday News Wrap, a conversation about the recent ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals overturning a Maryland handgun law. We'll have a theater review from Jay Wynn Russick and a preview of a concert by a great chamber music group, Poulenc Trio. Coming up now, it's Here and Now after news at the top of the hour. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for being with us. Have a great day. This is your public radio. Member supported 881 WYPR.